Thank you. Well, my name is Jim. I've shared this testimony to like organizations on radio, the school boards, and churches, and things like that, but never to church groups, but never in a church like this. I'm going to start off when I graduated from college. So I went to USC in Columbia, graduated there. Shortly after that, I met a beautiful young lady, got married for a few years, had a son, ended in a divorce. Uh, honestly, it was my fault. I had not a clue about how to be a husband or never gone through any teaching other than three weeks of meeting with the pastor who, who married us. So I'd consider that sort of a failure. So <clears throat> after I was divorced, but I did have a son. He's now 43, and he lives in Ocean Isle. Just bought a house down there. Three years later, I remarried. I did things much, I did things much better the second time around. I didn't make a lot of the mistakes I made trying to learn from them. So in 1979, my wife was pregnant. It was her due date. She could not have uh, children naturally, so she was scheduled for a section. And on her due date, we got a phone call, and her father was murdered. So um, he had come home from a business trip and walked in on a burglary in his home and was shot and killed. So she actually went into shock uh, for several weeks and we got through the funeral. It was in another state. We got special permission to fly. So we went to Tennessee, went through that and came back and she basically went into shock and we had to have emergency section and we delivered my son. Life went on. She, um, her father, was uh, kind of everything in her life. Her mother was mentally ill, and so her dad meant a lot more to her than a normal father would. He kind of held their family together. So I had another son in 92, and then a third in 96. So that, well, actually that's my fourth. I'm sorry, I'm a little confused here, but. So Andrew, he was born in 92. My, f my first one by my second marriage was Will. He, he, uh, he was born in 79. So my third son was born in 3896. So the story behind him is that my wife was on the way to school, and one of my sons had left his lunch. And so she was going down Carolina Beach Road, and someone pulled into her path, and she T-boned her. It was not her fault. Uh, my wife's fault, but she was eight and a half months pregnant. And so um, it almost killed the lady that she hit. And then my wife had was rushed to the hospital. And two hours later, I had my, I had my fourth son. His name was Hunter. So fortunately, in that situation, because it was so touch and go for a while, because he, he, was, he was hurt and she was hurt. There was a nurse that I knew who was a believer. The anesthesiologist was a friend of mine that was a believer. And I didn't know this, but I, I met a doctor who's now still a, a good friend all these years later. He, uh, he was a believer and they were all in there praying under their breath that everything would be okay. So Hunter turned out to be a healthy young man. 
when Hunter was six, we noticed he, he was pretty athletic. We noticed that he started falling down. He started having headaches, and we were um, we would take him to the doctor, and the doctor was basically telling us that he had some, some kind of severe allergy. So we went through all the allergy tests, trying to figure out what was wrong, what was causing all these kind of things. I decided that I wanted a scan. I said, I just want to rule, rule this out. And the doctor basically said that he didn't, in his opinion, he thought that we should just keep doing what we were doing. But my son kept getting worse. Finally, it got so bad with throwing up and headaches, he, he almost wasn't functioning. So I, um, I had a lot of friends that were doctors, so I went to the hospital and I said, We've, we need to do a CT scan on his brain. I just want to make sure. So they did a scan and found out he had two tumors uh, in his brain the size of golf balls, like a figure eight, one on top of the other around his brain stem. It had gotten so bad, so we had to, that night we left to go to Chapel Hill Children's Hospital. And two days later, they performed a nine-hour surgery. They were a team of five doctors. Uh, when something's wrapped around your brain stem, I, I learned all this, it, if you touch it, it can maybe cause part of your body not to function. So they, they did a new procedure, and the surgery went great. So after that, we took one boy to Chapel Hill, and we brought another one home. His tumor was in uh, the cerebellum, part of his brain. It affected his emotions and his personality. So he had to learn how to interact with people all over again. So my other son, Andrew, I told you about, he was the only one that had a normal kind of birth. When Andrew was 13, Andrew was hit by a car. So the story there is my kids were at youth group at Myrtle Grove Prez uh, called Big House. And on the way home, they noticed this big piece of wood on Carolina Beach Road in the middle of the road in the slower lane, not the fast lane. So they stopped the car and they looked both ways and didn't see any cars coming. So Andrew got out and faced traffic uh, thinking that there were no cars coming. And, and yet what they didn't see, there's a car that pulled out of a side road that didn't have his lights on. So he, the officer said he was going about 55 miles an hour and he hit Andrew and pretty much destroyed his legs. And um, Will, uh, thinking because he, had, he was a Boy Scout, had to stop the bleeding because there were bones sticking out of both of his legs. So when, when I got to the hospital, I couldn't believe what I saw. But two doctors, one of my really good friends with the orthopedic surgeon, and I called him. I said, listen, there's this new doctor in town who's supposed to do this surgery on my son, and I have, I don't, is he any good? And he said, yeah, he's, he's very gifted. And it said, I'm coming in. So one doctor took one leg, one doctor took the other. All night long, they operated, took nine hours, and they put his legs back together. He had rods in his full length of his femurs, and, you know, it was very painful, and he went through six months of, um, of, therapy, physical therapy, learning how to walk again. And uh, it was interesting, you know, we made it all through there. <clears throat> In 2007, my wife started 
having issues with anxiety and withdrawal symptoms. She started withdrawing from things she loved to do. And I, I had no idea what was going on. I mean, I had four kids. Uh, one was in college. And I'm saying she, she got where she couldn't function and do the normal things. And we were, we were close. We would talk about it at night. So I, uh, I arranged for us to meet with a uh, doctor after hours. And what I found is like a lot of times with Christians, more than people that are not Christians, they have problems with admitting that they're, they could be depressed. It's a lie of the enemy. And if they have anxiety problems, they, there's like this stigma and, you know, it's like, I'm not a good Christian because I'm having these problems. So she was really reluctant to get help. So I found a counselor, found a doctor. We went after hours. We got her some really light antidepressant meds. And so we, um, I was trying to do all I, all I knew to do to help her. I called her five best friends, and I met with them, and I just asked them for help. And, and so I had to kind of take on more of the responsibilities that she did, like lunches and carpooling and all those things. And it just, it was not getting better. And I reached the point I knew that I needed to take her somewhere to get help because I, what, everything I tried or knew to do or the advice I got wasn't working. So um, the day... I made that decision. I had to go. I had to go to the nuclear plant and do some work. And I remember coming on, coming back. I pulled over on the side of the road and I called her sister and said, I've, "I'm going to do something. Nothing's working." And so that afternoon, I got a call from our school. My kids went to Myrtle Grove Christian School. I got a call and said, "My wife didn't show up to uh, pick up my son." And so I, I knew, I didn't know what had happened. I knew something was really wrong uh, because they were really so close and so tight. And so I called my middle son, who was then 16, and I said, go pick up Hunter, and I want you to take him out and go get something to eat, and don't come home until I call you. So I went home, and I found her car there, and the door was locked, and she had taken her life. So she didn't leave a note, and I was, like, stunned. I felt like I fell in a raging river, and it was just taking me down, and I couldn't do anything. So that night, we told the boys. We decided that uh, some pastor friends, we told the boys what happened, and we tried to uh, put our life, you know, to move forward and put our life back together. Over the next six or eight months, when I went to the mailbox, I started finding letters, anonymous letters showed up. People were living through our pain, my pain, and what we went through, but letters are telling us, I lost my mother when I was 20 years old, or I lost my father, or I lost my husband, or I lost my brother. I have a stack of them. I I still keep them, I can't throw them away. Because uh, I found out that there, um, there's so much shame associated with depression and suicide. 
and mental illness things that people are reluctant to share. So having to deal with this, I started growing up as a man. I was a Christian. I was honest. I paid my bills. I worked hard. I was a good provider. But I I knew that there was more. And somehow I was able to every day ask God to use it for good in my life. What I found out is that he answered my prayers. He gave me grace. And there's a scripture, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, with the grace God gives us to go through problems, we're able to give to other people. And I'll give you a brief example. One day I was in another church, and I was sitting in the back, and this really beautiful lady walks in. I guess she was 25 or more, and I heard the Lord clearly say, I want you to pray for that girl. So I said, okay, God, she's going to think I'm hitting on her or something, you know, like, you know, some really pretty girl. And so I, I, I was obedient. After the service, I went up to her and I said, I felt like God told me to pray for you. And she looked at me and started crying. She said, I tried to take my life last night. The first words out of her mouth. So God, whatever you've been through in your life that you think's bad, God will turn it around and use it to help others, no matter what it is that you've been through. So nine years later, oh, I will tell you this, about 50 families got together and they fed us for a year and a half. I came home from, from work one day and I, I was carpooling with the moms now. I was a carpool. I became Mr. Mom. I came home from school one day and there was a brand new freezer in my carport full of casseroles. And so the body took care of me for a year and a half. And my kids had a couple of favorites. They, they went online and looked at the schedule because they had a couple of mothers that went all out. <laughs> and one of them was the wife of the doctor that delivered Hunter from the, after the car wreck. She was um, Courtney Chase. And she's now in heaven too. So they're rejoicing up there in the, cl- in the cloud of witnesses. It was really funny how guys are, you know, with their stomachs and food and stuff. But so nine years later, we had moved. We'd, I'd sold my house and we'd moved down towards Wrightsville Beach. And um, I had two of my boys living with me. Everybody else was either in college or out or married. And um, <clears throat> I got a call one day. Uh, I got home late in the afternoon. I got a call one day from the police. Said, we need to meet with you. We went to your old address. And so the first thing I thought was someone was in an accident. So they wouldn't tell me what it was over the phone. They were Wrightsville Beach police officers. So I just couldn't imagine. So I told them my current address. And so these two officers came in. One was a male and one was a female. And I noticed a female officer was crying. So I just thought, oh, I, I just tried to prepare myself. They told me that my youngest son had taken his life. So four days before that, he had called me. He was living in an apartment with some of his buddies. He was making straight A's in school. He was really smart. 
was getting ready to go to NC State to transfer there and room with his best friend. He, um, he said, Dad, I'm really sick, and I think I have the flu. So we went to the doctor, and they did a flu test. And so I said, you need to stay with me. I'll take care of you. And so he, he was staying with me, and they prescribed a medication to take for flu. So I gave him that medication, and three days later, he took his life. And so I started doing research, and I filed a complaint with the FDA, a formal complaint, and all I got back was a, a, a form letter. I did it verbally and in writing. The, the verbal one was three hours long, but I found out that this particular medication had been banned in a lot of countries because of suicidal tendencies. After that, I was just, I couldn't eat. I lost a tremendous amount of weight. And people think I'm thin now, but I, I feel like you could see my backbone bone through my stomach. I just couldn't eat because I, uh, this son that had the brain tumor, we, uh, we had to go to Chapel Hill eight to 10 times a year for uh, scans. The kind of tumor he had recurred a lot in people. So we would always go up there every time he had a headache, we would head up there and I'd spent so much uh, of my energy and my heart and prayer for him. Um, I was thankful we'd go in there and we'd see kids that they had no hope. They were getting chemotherapy. They didn't have hair or they looked horrible. And my son was so healthy looking and he just really, uh, he, he was great. But about several months after that, I joined an organization called TBS. I ended up becoming a counselor, a facilitator with them, but it's touched by suicide. So we would minister to three to 40 people uh, every time we would meet, sometimes we'd meet two or three times a month because if there was a suicide in Wilmington, like when Robin Williams took his life, we had big crowds like people wanted to know what was going on. So we facilitated those kind of things and gave back. But I kind of want to give you some takeaways because God is not just in the mountaintops. He's in the valleys too. He's in the pits, he's in trauma, he's in jails, hospitals, courtrooms, he's everywhere. He's not just in only the good things. Amen. He will never leave you or forsake you. I found that to be true in my life. He'll make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. I could grill, but I couldn't cook. But God put it on a friend of mine's heart. She built a website and people signed up. And like I said, for a year and a half, I had food coming in and um, a, lot of, a lot of them were trying to put weight on me. I know because I'd lost so much weight, but my kids really got the benefit of that. But bad things that happen to you do not have to define you. You can allow them to define you but they do not have to define you. And I imagine you, you never know what's happened to people that are sitting in a room. You never know what's behind a front door in a house and what's going on. The other thing, I talked about it to a friend this morning that's staying with me. Nothing we go through changes God's will for your life. 
In 139.16 Psalms, God wrote our life story in a book. So that doesn't change with what goes on in your life. And for some way, I was able to not let this destroy my life or uh, there, there is a lot of shame associated with suicide and mental health issues, but it's all a lie. God can heal anything. So if any of you in this room have ever had something tragic happen to you, I learned to ask God for another way to see or look, look at it. And I think of the life of Joseph all the horrible things in the natural that happened to him. He was thrown in the pit. His brothers beat him. They sold him into slavery, and then he ended up in prison. And in the natural, it looks bad. But God said, I sent him ahead. There's a higher purpose to things that go on to us than what we experience in the natural. And God wants to use everything for good. The enemy does come to steal, kill, and destroy, but God came to give life abundantly. So he has that for us. But I believe we enact that because we have to choose to look at it the right way. You've got to choose to believe that God's in the bad stuff. You've got to choose to believe that your plan for your life is still in effect. And like somehow I was able to do that. Um, the other thing is you need to have people in your life that'll speak the truth and love to you. Not people that are gonna candy coat things and sugarcoat things to you and tell you what you wanna hear or things that are just gonna make you feel better. But the truth is what sets us free. We need the truth. And somehow God has put those kind of people in my lives and uh, through friends, and I've been able to make it, and I'm still standing. The enemy has not won. God's plan for my life is still in effect. And so whatever you've been through, God wants to use it for good in your life. And there are some scriptures. I'll read them quickly, and then I'm, I'm done. Romans 8:28. we all know that one. And we know that all things, not some things or just the good things, but all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's all things. No exclusions. Second Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. This is the King, New King James Version. Blessed be the, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may, be a, we may be able to comfort those who are in trouble with the same comfort which with that God gave us. So God doesn't waste anything. He wants to use it. And then Philippians 4.13, I can do all things Christ who strengthens me. So when tragedy happens in, in our lives, we have a choice and we have to choose God. We choose to believe him. Even we can't go by our feelings or fickle. We have to choose to believe God and that he will use it. And I'm a testimony here 
that I've spoken to literally hundreds and hundreds of people all over the world. People's kids or someone takes their life, they call me to go speak to the family. But God has used this over and over to offer people hope because our hope is in God and he is real and he shows up even in the dark things, whatever, whatever your dark things might be.